So to our next guest. The Christodora is, in the words of one of the characters, a very plain, handsome, boxy brick building in New York's East Village. It's not the grandest building in New York or the most important, but it is home to Hector, who was a celebrated AIDS activist but who is now a meth addict and living in the basement, to Millie and Jared, liberals who are trying to make art and make meaning and also offer a home to a boy that they adopt called Matteo, um, who is an AIDS orphan. This building and this family tell the story of the cities from the 1980s to the 2020s. It just squeaks into the future. From soaring crime to soaring house prices, from Reagan to Bush to Clinton, back to Bush again and on to Obama, from Keith Haring to Marina Abramovich, from the plague to Lazarus Syndrome, from Madonna and Bronsky Beat to Lady Gaga. Opening the doors of the Christadora tonight, activist, journalist and novelist Tim Murphy. Welcome. Thank you so much for, I'm so nervous, I want to vomit right now. I haven't never read in a room this big. So um, I'll just set this up quickly. Um, so the Christadora is a real building in the East Village that um, you know, was built in the late 1920s as um, working middle class housing. And it cost a million dollars to build. And it, like so much of the city, it really sank into the depths of dereliction in the 60s and the 70s. And the city acquired the building at some point and sold the building in 1975, which was probably the rock bottom moment for the city, sold the whole building for $60,000. Um, and now apartments in that building go for $1.7 or $1.8 million. So to me, I loved the building as the setting and the sort of uh, launching board the story because it really kind of, to me, uh, symbolizes the whole arc of the city over the past few decades. So the book, um, it actually starts the weekend before 9-11 and this young kind of uh, bourgeois artistic couple who live in the building have adopted this little boy named Mateo whose mother, Isabel, has died of AIDS um, several years earlier. And so there's two timelines. One timeline goes forward from there as he grows up, and it's about what happens to him and what happens to them as a family. And it goes back and forth with another timeline that starts in 1981, which was the year that um, the AIDS epidemic was first identified in New York City. Um, and um, a lot of that timeline is about his mother, a working class Latina from Queens named Isabel Mendez, who uh, finds out that she's HIV positive and lives in you know, kind of shame and secrecy with it for several years before she finally steps up and becomes an activist and becomes part of what was the very real life movement in the city around that. So I'm actually gonna read a little bit from this chapter. It's the chapter that introduces Isabel um, before any of this has happened to her and it's called, um, it's set in 1984 and it's called I Want to Thank You. And will you also just maybe give me like a cue, like when I get around the 10 minute, because I have kind of a bad tendency to end up reading a whole chapter or something, so, okay. Isabel was having so much fun. The music sounded amazing and the men around her were beautiful. Whatever she and Tavi had taken, MDMA, she thought Tavi had said, had made her feel euphoric. 
and she and Tavi were dancing close, bumping, grinding. In the song, the woman sang something like, had enough of all the pressure, had a life that felt like pouring rain. Then I turned around. I was so astounded by your smile. Finally, there was light, and this is the moment of my life. That's just how Issy felt. There could not be more than a few dozen other women in this packed club going on 2 a.m., and she knew none of these men were going to fall in love with her, but she didn't care. She was with her best friend, Tavi, and a bunch of Tavi's friends. The music was great. Tavi was holding her close. It was a Saturday night, and she didn't have to be back at work, in fact, until Thursday, the day after the 4th of July. She and Tavi locked eyes, held that stare, smiled. Then Tavi kissed her. Not his usual kiss on the cheek, but on the lips, open-mouthed. Not with his tongue, but still, it lingered. She put her hands over her lips. Oh my God, Tavi, she said, you did not just. Tavi laughed like a hyena. <laughs> yeah, princess, I just did. That boy was fucking crazy. He was skinny with a big Boricua fro and a gap between his two front teeth, wearing Sergio Valente jeans, a tight yellow t-shirt saying, where's the beef, and three gold chains. Tavi, her best friend from the block in Corona, Queens, whom she'd pretty much known was gay since they were 14. What other boy ran around the neighborhood in tiny orange gym shorts, a rainbow headband, and Mork from Ork suspenders, singing at the top of his lungs, Hey, mister, have you got a dime? Mister, do you want to spend some time? Yep, that was Octavio. Tavi boy, she called him. They did everything together. She showed Tavi some of her best moves, kind of like if she were Sheila E. in the new Glamorous Life video she was obsessed with, in that shiny tight coat, rocking her shoulders while she thrashed away on those drums. Sheila E. was her new idol. In her mind, she was Sheila E. She did have hair nearly as big as Sheila's, styled asymmetrically, and she thought she had Sheila's attitude. Yet, Issy was not deluded. She did not think she was as beautiful or sexy as Sheila, even as she tried to make the most of what she had, her large bright eyes, smooth caramel skin, and fairly good curves. Even though she stood at only five feet four inches, and if her nose was a little flatter, her forehead a little higher, and her lips a little thinner than she'd have liked, she did her best to distract away from those things with makeup, fashion, and attitude. In her neighborhood, she was well-liked, she was, after all, the younger sister of Freddy Mendez, a big guy with swagger who'd nearly made the farm team for the Mets and who, frankly, had never much paid her the time of day. But lately, having just turned 25, working toward her dental hygienist certificate while watching all her friends get married and have kids, or not get married but still have kids, she'd started to wonder, what'll become of me? Will I be alone my whole life? She would then catalog in her head the good qualities she possessed. I'm a caring person, she thought. I have a good sense of humor. I can cook. I take excellent care of my teeth. I don't take things too sensitively. I can go with the flow. Putting this list together in her head helped her. And she would always top it off with a prayer that she meet the right man for her before she turned 28. The previous cutoff had been 25 until she turned 25. Sometimes, often, strangely, in church, when she imagined she was supposed to be feeling her best, she would get deep pinpricks in her stomach that all was not right with the world. 
and that her usual daily belief that people were good and everything was as it should be was, well, a sham. She would think about how her father and brother held sway over the household, how she'd heard the words bitch and puta from them and other men, including her uncles and cousins, since she was a little girl, before she even knew what the words meant. She'd think about all the loved children in the family and the neighborhood, about men who got off with impunity, and she'd think about the beat-down, sullen, workaday indignance of her grandmother and her mother and so many older women she knew, and how those women seemed to take it out on one another in the form of backstabbing and gossip. And she would suddenly feel not so great, or that the real answers were not to be found here in church, listening to this old, light-skinned Dominican priest drone on about rejecting the glamour of Satan. And she would seriously wonder if there wasn't perhaps some other life out there for her that promised more than a dental hygienist certificate. Then, to herself, barely perceptibly, she would sigh and dismiss her own thoughts. But her head wasn't in that melancholy place tonight. She was just having fun, and oh my God, she felt amazing. Plus, these men were hot. Here was one coming up to her right now. The DJ had just, song, had just changed the song. Baby, you make my love come down, the whole room shouted along with the singer. Oh, you make my love come down. And suddenly this guy, this big-ass, hairy-chested moreno with chains dripping over a mesh purple tank top was bumping up against her. Hey, baby, he mouthed over the music. He held up poppers to his nose, inhaled, then held the tube up to her nose. She'd been watching guys inhale them on the dance floor all night, and she wondered what they did. So now she allowed herself a demure sniff. Suddenly, she was feeling deliciously woozy and clinging to the guy's neck while he stroked her breasts and buttocks. Her knees buckled in her leggings. She was going to go out of her mind if she didn't have sex soon, she thought. She hadn't had sex since, well, two years ago, that sort of bad incident at that party. That hadn't been what she was looking for. Even the first time at 15 with Ricky Malandrino, it hadn't been what she was expecting either. It had hurt, and it was over before it even began. It hadn't seemed very romantic. And then Ricky not so much as even talking to her in the street after. That didn't feel too great. But this moment, wow. They were sort of swaying and grinding, and she was holding onto his neck for dear life, feeling like her whole body below was giving out under his big hands. Then, as she felt the breathless, scary swoon of the poppers fade away, he pulled back. He put a hand under her chin and smiled at her and kissed her gently on the lips. You're beautiful, he told her. Shut up, she laughed good-naturedly. You're just high. He lost his smile, got stern. No, baby, you are, he said. You gotta believe that. He kissed her once more, then slipped away, leaving her there, barely moving amid the dancers. Tavi, who'd witnessed the whole thing, sidled back over to her. Puta, he said, then cackled. She shoved him, pleased with herself. They kept on dan- How am I doing? What do I have, like, three more minutes or something? About as long as he has, I think. <laughs> was, oh, well, you'd be surprised. It's a foreplay. Um, they kept on dancing, hours it seemed. At different times, other men came over to them, danced with them, did the bump and grind with Tavi. He came to this Paradise Garage Club a lot, and he knew a lot of guys here, and even sometimes with her. Ooh, now the DJ was playing Heartbeat, 
ooh, she loved this song. That slow beat, heartbeat, you make me feel so weak. That's how she felt, weak from dancing and elation. She, held, she had her head up looking into the lighting system, her arms up over her head. She felt sexy. Girl, this song is turning you out, Tavi shouted at her over the beat. She shoved him. You're so disgusting. Some guys came over and danced with them. Uh, kisses and gropes went all around. One of the guys, Issy noted, was very darkly handsome, a Boricua probably, with a somewhat serious, non-effeminate air about him. He looked a bit nerdy in his large, square-frame glasses, which he repeatedly took off to wipe steam from the lenses. There he was, dancing along with the rest of the guys in his tight t-shirt and designer jeans and Nikes, a bit of gold around his neck, but he seemed a little uptight. Tavi introduced everyone over the music. She and the handsome, nerdy guy, who was how old? Not quite 30 yet? Met eyes. He gave her a kind smile, not that kind of, hey girl, greeting she got from most of the queens here. He took a few steps toward her, kissed her cheek. I'm Hector, he said over the music. I'm Isabel, she shouted back. Issy, how do you know Tavi, he asked. We grew up together in Corona, she shouted, since we were little kids. Hector nodded his understanding. He's crazy, he said. Issy laughed. I know, she screamed. He's crazy, it's true, but I love him. I do too. How do you know him, she asked. First from out in the clubs, but now we volunteer together at GMHC, GMHC too, on the phones. She knitted her brow in puzzlement. What's that, she asked. Gay men's health crisis, Hector said. It's an AIDS organization. Oh, she frowned. Then a horrible thought struck her. She glanced over at Tavi. Is he okay? She asked Hector. Oh, I think so. As far as I know, I mean, the test for it isn't out yet. We're just trying to provide direct services because the health department isn't doing anything, which I should know because I work for them. Issy nodded gravely. She hoped Tavi was okay. Otherwise, she hadn't caught much of what Hector had said. He seemed so serious for a guy on the dance floor. He'd even fully stopped dancing for a moment. It's a terrible thing, she offered. He nodded in turn. Yep, you gotta be careful, protect yourself. Tavi came over. What are you bitches talking about? He shrieked. Issy shoved him lightly. Tavs, you didn't tell me you do volunteer work for AIDS. Tavi looked briefly freaked out, like he hadn't wanted Hector to tell her. Then he cackled and threw his arm around Hector. Yeah, we're like fucking Florence Nightingale and Mother Teresa up in there. I'm like Lily Tomlin with her receptionist headset thing going. He did his Ernestine imitation with an overbite, stretching out his face. He hip-checked Hector. This one's always recruiting queens for the cause. Hector shrugged. If we don't do it, nobody else will, he said. So serious, Issy thought again, yet very handsome. Could he loosen up and have fun? She took his hand, made him spin her. Come on, Poppy, no more heavy talk. You gotta shake it more. I'll stop there. It gets so hot what happens next. <laughs> so hot and, yeah, yeah, it's a lot of hotness. It's a very hot book, actually. Um, there's, yeah, a lot happens. Anyway, um, I was blushing a lot reading it. I found myself truly, I think I'm <laughs> blushing now. That's good, right? I, yeah, 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 it is. Um, so um, the stories that, that we encounter in this 
book feel like stories I haven't heard bef before. It's, it's like you're chronicling something that, that feels raw and completely real and yet also weirdly historical. It's hard to think about um, HIV and AIDS in a time when there wasn't a test for it yet, when people were still kind of mystified and, and, and terrified. And, um, and yet you, you, take his, you take his right there into that moment and you tell us stories that we haven't heard before. And I'm wondering why we haven't heard those stories before, stories like, um, like Izzy's. Hmm. Wow, I mean, I, <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, you know, there have been some very well-known stories about sure. AIDS, like The Normal Heart, Larry Kramer's play mm. from 1985, or Angels in America from 1992. Which is just about to be put on again here for the anniversary. Oh, is it really? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Will you have me back for that? Yeah. Fly me over? Yeah. Okay. Um, but, you know, I don't think that... Um, and I think with with women in AIDS, there you know there have been some like Sarah Schulman's uh, novels, and uh, there's one, Mary Gateskill has a really great novel called Veronica, but um, I guess there haven't. And you know, when I started writing this book in 2009, I mean I've been like an HIV/AIDS journalist for for 20 years, so this whole narrative of how it played out in New York City from the very beginning. Um, you know, all the way through, you know, for 15 years until 1996 when the treatment actually finally became effective. And then what happened later was stuff that I had written about and witnessed in my own life and with my own friends. But I don't feel like there really had been a work about it that really kind of embodied the whole arc of the epidemic, you know, like the whole sweep, and particularly how it affected people and their families and the survivors like into the 90s and into the 2000s and into the 2010s. Um, and it did in, in many ways because there were in, incredible losses. I mean, so many people were lost in the prime of life that, you know, there were peers of them that went on to, you know, a lot of those people. I mean, I'm in my late 40s and a lot of those people now are in their 50s and 60s, but there are huge gaps in their, um, in their emotional lives because of people that they lost like 25 or 30 years ago. So I really wanted to try to tell a story that really swept and wasn't just about AIDS but was about the city itself because the city has just changed so much. Even since I moved there in 1991, I mean, the, it's just so, so rich now for one thing, which was not the case. 25 years ago. It's interesting that the, the city, New York, like like Moscow and Amor's book, New York doesn't seem to give a shit about the people who have AIDS. I mean, there doesn't seem, the city itself doesn't seem to respond very quickly to what's happening to some of its inhabitants, does it? You mean at the time that it started? Yeah, that was very much the case. I mean, there was incredible uh, indifference. It was, um, you know, AIDS emerged in a climate of incredible homophobia. Um, you know, there were the most, at that time, maybe just the most piddling local, a few scattered local anti-discrimination laws in a, in a few cities. Um, it was, um, you know, I mean, gay people were treated with kind of indifference and invisibility at best and outright hostility at worst. And uh, that's the atmosphere in which the, the epidemic arrived. And um, the mayor, Ed Koch at the time, was uh, closeted. Uh, gay, so he was particularly ill-equipped to step up and provide the leadership, and he did everything possible to sidestep it. 
And um, the city was just horrible, and the country was horrible. I mean, you know, Ronald Reagan did not, the, the, the epidemic emerged in 1981, and he did not even say, he did not even, he once said the word AIDS in 1985 in response to a question at a press conference, but he did not initiate a conversation about it until 1987. And, I mean, the year before, it was the 100th anniversary, in 1986, it was the 100th anniversary of the Statue of Liberty, and um, Bob Hope made a horrible AIDS joke at the thing. You know, he said something like, the Statue of Liberty has AIDS, but we don't know if she got it from the Staten Island Ferry or from the mouth. And Reagan just threw his head back and laughed. And everybody laughed along with him. I mean, such were the times. It was a really, it was a horrible uh, period for this to occur. Um, one of the one of the positive aspects of the story that happens in direct response to that is, is that the hatred galvanizes this group of previously quite disparate people who'd existed in kind of social spaces, but, and, they, and they become politicized, and they're incredibly young. That's one of the things that really strikes me about this story. We're talking about people in their teens and in their 20s and in their early 30s who are creating a political movement, and, you, and there are a couple of scenes in the novel where that where the activism is not only, it's, it's thrilling, but it's also sexy. There's all these hot guys demonstrating um, and making placards and together. And girls, and girls hot yeah. dykes too. Yeah, I mean, the dykes turned up. Yeah. They, 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 they were really there did, yeah. Um, but th but that's, that's a new thing. I haven't seen that before, the, the excitement, I guess, of finding purpose and sexiness in activism. I mean, I really wanted to... Uh, you know, I, again, like I moved to the city just a few years after that movement started to simmer down a little bit. I mean, it really peaked in the very late 80s and the very early 90s. And uh, I had heard so much about it from so many people. So many people had told me how electrifying those meetings were, how um, electrifying it was to be in this state of despair and anger and come together. And they wrenched what they wanted out of the government, and they didn't do it immediately. I mean, it, it really took them a few years to really learn how to do it and get momentum, but like they really, you know, using a combination of really knowing the science in some cases better than the scientists and civil disobedience and taking over buildings, like they really cracked the code and they got the government to come around. And I think they, you know, so many of those friends of mine who were there say that those were the most just electrifying times. I mean, despite the fear of the time and the, the loss and the incredible stress and the, the grief, uh, that that was the you know, most exciting period of their life because they almost couldn't believe what they were pulling off. And of course, it's, you know, I mean, in, in, it's very evocative of the moment we're in again. Yeah, and it reminded me a lot of hearing my grandparents' generation talking about the war. You know, they'd, they'd never felt more alive than when they were surrounded by all this death. Um, the Cristadora is, a, is a, real, a real place, and St. Vincent's Hospital, which appears in there, is a real place. Is Judith, Judith House a real place as well? Um, it was, it's based on some real places, yeah. Yeah, there was, a, there's a, there was a, there's a, an AIDS residence called Bailey House and another one called Iris House. And so I was thinking of those places and the women who started those, those places uh, when I you know, made up the residents in this story. So given that you spent so much time reporting on the front line there um, and volunteering, why did you choose to write a novel about it and not a memoir about your experiences? 
Well, actually, I did want to, I thought this whole story of treatment activism was amazing, and I did consider writing, like, do it, writing a nonfiction book about it, but I actually found out around that time that this other journalist, David France, was working on that very book, which came out recently, and it's really incredible. It's called How to Survive a Plague, and it's enormous, but it's, in, it's actually an incredibly good read. I mean, it's almost like a, a playbook for activism, you know, because it's, it gets so granular in terms of how it all played out. Um, so I think after I realized he was working on that, I didn't want to, I mean, he predated me in terms of covering this. I mean, he, was in the, he actually was in the city through the whole 80s. So um, I thought, you know, I thought, well, maybe instead I will. I mean, it was sort of a challenge, like, how do you take something that's can get very wonky and like very detailed and really go down into the weeds of like politics and science. And how do you in, how do you interpolate like a fictional story through it and make it a compelling backdrop for the book, but not overwhelm the story, you know, and not have it become really digress into like having it become really like didactic or um, so it was really this balance. And even as I was writing it, I didn't know if. I was doing it well, but I just really wanted to tell this story because um, when I started the book in 2009, really no one had told it, or no one had told it in that full arc over like 30 or 40 years. Let's talk about a bit about the, the, the end of that arc. Let's talk about 1996 and why that's so important um, and this idea of Lazarus syndrome and what that is. Well, 1996 was the year that after, you know, just years of trying and failing, they finally found the combination of medications that, that worked, that sustainedly suppressed the virus, and basically stopped sickness and death and prolonged life. And, um, you know, even today, even the medications we have today are just advancements and refinements on, like, the, the kind of idea of combination therapy that they, that they pioneered at that time. So it was a very um, pivotal year because... Um, people who were literally on death's door just came back and they called it Lazarus syndrome because um, you know, people who were um, on the brink of death and looked like it reversed. And in time, it, and I mean, not all of them, those meds were imperfect, so not all of those people lived, but a great many did, the majority did. So I think that was the year when people were like, oh shit, like, it, we're not going to die, you know, what do we do now? And I think the what do we do now has been really um, challenging for a lot of people. I mean, you know, many of those people are my friends, and a lot of them have had a really hard time because I think when you spend a big chunk of your youth preparing to die, spiritually preparing to die, and just sort of, you know, thinking of, you know, okay, this is going to be my lifespan, and then you get this curveball, um, it's extremely... Um, traumatizing. So, um, you know, that's why I wanted to push the book forward into the 2000s and the 2010s um, to show, like, what happened to that generation of fighters, and, and then also just to show what happened to the city as well, because the city became so impossibly prosperous and, um, and trendy, you know, and, and just and wealthy, you know, in this way that uh, was, so was not the case in the 80s and early 90s. I really wanted to just kind of 
unfurl like the you know the city over this period of time yeah there's, there's one reference in the book to desolate west chelsea where people wouldn't go yeah. which i thought was hilarious um the the character hector is one of those survivors he's one of those people who's raised from the dead and we spend a great deal of time with him in the book dealing with his guilt about surviving, which is something that he finds surprising and, and something that he finds difficult, and which I think you depict in a very beautiful and humane and, and difficult way. It's hard, it's hard to understand for him, and it's hard, I think, for the reader too. And you dedicate the book to survivors. And I wonder how close you yourself came to not surviving. Me personally? Mm. I mean, the book is definitely informed by, you know, I mean, I definitely had a period in my younger years of, of depression and of addiction, and that deeply informs the book in terms of um, uh, trying to uh, have a very uh, vivid narrative of what those things are like. You know, there's a character, um, you know, she's a city health official who, when we meet her, well, I don't really want to spoil it or whatever, but she has issues, you know. And, um, you know, and then there are a few characters that have different, uh, like, iterations of, of addiction. And um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think I really did not want to write a, uh, a memoir. You know, I had written two, no, I had published two novels in my late 20s, and I had really fallen out of fiction as I, like, kind of went into journalism more intensely in my 30s. But... Um, I didn't want to write a memoir. I felt like that memoir had been, I had, there had been enough of like, you know, addiction memoirs. And, and I didn't even remember all of it, frankly. So um, I wondered like, how could I use that raw material and like thread it through various characters and thread it through um, kind of like a multiplicity of lives and, and points of view and kind of just like take that raw experience and, and kind of like disperse it through like through several characters. Um, if it hasn't already been optioned, I'm sure HBO must be about to option it, but has it been optioned? It's been optioned, yeah. Yay! Yeah. Um, and hope, and you know, and fingers crossed it will, I mean a lot more. Would you be involved in that, do you think? Is that something no, you'd like to? No, I mean I would be like a consultant, but no I wouldn't. Actually the, the person who would, uh, who is adapting it and who would direct it is a really wonderful filmmaker named Ira Sachs who made a, really has made some great movies, including Love is Strange and Little Men. And they're very New York City movies. They're very like closely observed um, films about kind of like New York domestic life. Um, uh, so, you know, not everything that gets optioned gets made, but I'm, I'm hopeful that it would be. It would be a miniseries. Miniseries, so glamorous in the 80s. Yeah, I know. Um, so th the city that you came to is not the city that, that you still live in now? No, I still live there, yeah. And do, how, how is your relationship with it now compared to when you, you were there? And do you think you'll always stay there? <sighs> Boy. Um, well, I do spend, I mean, I actually spend a lot of time outside the city now. I mean, I do, you know, I think you're thin, your skin thins as you age to, um, some of the daily, uh, uh, what, stimuli of the city. Um, I still really love it so much. I mean, I, I've, I feel like I've made that full, like so many New Yorkers, that Manhattan to Brooklyn transition in the past 10 years that like so many people have made. And, um, and I still love it so much. And I think I love it now more than ever because it feels so precious and it, 
like a sanctuary, you know, and I hope that it's a, you know, I mean, I don't really, I'm sure for anyone who reads the news here, I don't really need to belabor, but it's just absolutely horrible. I mean, I know that the other half of the country might disagree, but it's a fucking terrifying, horrible and shameful moment. And um, so, you know, places like New York are, um, are become really precious, you know, when your federal government becomes the enemy, you really um, expect and hope that your, that your city, you know, your metropolitan government and your regional government, you know, New York State is a f fairly progressive state, will become your protectors. And um, so I do find, like, a lot of friends that a lot of time right now is being taken up by, um, you know, like we say, like, protest is the new brunch because it's like, at work, it's like, which one are you going to on Sunday? The Muslim ban or the... <laughs> Please join me in thanking Tim Murphy. Thank you.